The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. John chapter 17, starting at verse 14. Hear now the word of God. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you. I need you right now, Lord. I need your strength, your perspective, your peace, and your help to teach this, proclaim this faithfully. Lord, we each need your help to hear you, to listen to you. Lord, we come with distractions, concerns, annoyances, sorrows. Help us, Lord, to focus in on the reality that you have spoken through your word and you're speaking now as we come to look at it and consider it. Lord, as we think about difficult questions regarding what we believe, we pray that your truth would just rise to the surface, to the top, that we'd see it. And Lord, I pray that our faith would be built up, we'd have greater confidence in you, and our skill and our ability to proclaim you and who you are to the world would grow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How's everybody doing? All right? It's good to see you. Glad you're not on vacation. Glad you're here with me this morning. This is our first effort of the Have and Answer series. We know from 1 Peter 3.15, the apostle writes, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the idea is you have a hope, right? You believe this Christian thing. And if anybody asks you about that, well, why do you believe that? What should you have? An answer. And you'll notice the apostle didn't say, you might want to think about having an answer. He said, no, have an answer. It's not a recommendation. It's a command. We need to have an answer for the hope that we believe. And so today we're going to start with really the most basic of questions. Haven't you noticed anytime you have a discussion about the big issues of life, why are we here, what's, what's God like, what's right and wrong, pretty soon there will come up the need for the authority. In other words, why do you believe what you believe? How do you know? And for Christians, the Sunday school answer is usually right, how do we, why do we know what we believe? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the, the Bible tells me so. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so the next question, well, why would you believe the Bible? Why would you believe the Bible? Can you really believe that it's true? And here's the questions I get commonly, often, maybe you do as well. How can we believe the Bible, number one, when it's just copies of copies of copies? And so we don't even know that what we're reading is actually the real thing, right? 
And they'll bring up the game kids play. You whisper to each other, and by the time it goes around the circle, you know, we start out by saying lion, and now we're saying something entirely different. So how can you even believe this? Number one, do you, do you even know it's real? Number two, what about all the contradictions? Any honest Christian would admit that, at least on a surface level, there are some things where you read them and you go, I'm not sure how that fits with some other things, right? So what about all the contradictions? Number one, they say, how can we believe the Bible because we don't even know we're actually reading the real Bible? Copies of copies of copies. Number two, if we are reading the real Bible, why would we trust the real Bible? Because there's all these contradictions. So Jesus loves me, you don't really know that. Because you can't trust the Bible. So, have an answer. What's your answer? What would you do with that? Let me set this up a little bit. We are asking if the Bible is true, but really we're asking more than if the Bible's true. We're asking if the Bible is truth. Do you know the difference? Truth is authority. Jesus in John 17, as we just read, Jesus said, your word is, he didn't say a picture of the truth or it's true. He said it is truth. It is itself ultimate truth. It's authoritative truth. So we can't do what's really popular in our day to do. This is generally the, the liberal approach. We, we, we can't do this. The approach is, let's treat the Bible like it's a good book, but not a divine book. So people will say, yeah, there's some good things in the Bible. Jesus was a good teacher. And the reason we do that is because, well, of course, everybody likes love your neighbor as yourself. No one's against that, generally. But there's some other things we don't like. So if we leave it in the status of it's a good book, then we can treat it like the buffet at Sizzler. Take what you want. Leave what you don't. We can't, we can't do that. We can't treat the Bible as a good book, not a divine book. We can't treat it like the uh, well-meaning alcoholic uncle. He's nice most of the time, but man, he's got some rough spots. Stay away. Isn't that how people treat the Bible today? Why can't we do that? Folks, it's irrational to do that. Do you know why it's irrational to do that? Because the Bible claims from Old Testament to New Testament, nearly every book, it claims to be ultimate revelation from God and perfectly true. Or we could say, it claims to be the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God. So the Bible's not saying, hey, read me, I'm a good book with some truth. The Bible is saying, read me and obey me because I am ultimate truth. So that's what we're defending. We're not saying, yeah, there's some true things in the Bible. We are saying as Christians, like Jesus said, your word, it is truth. The most famous verse on this would be Paul's sweeping statement, 2 Timothy 3. There he says the Bible is the empowering authority for salvation in all of life because he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It really is God's word. Then listen to this. I'm going to read for you Psalm 19. Just listen. I want your mind to try to pick up what the author says about God's word and what God's word does. Okay? Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Then he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. 
beautiful. Now that's either true or it isn't. So this first question we're dealing with is really kind of the ultimate question. Because if the Bible's not true, let's quit and go home and do something else. If it is true, that changes everything. And really, the stakes couldn't be higher, could they? All we're talking about is eternal destiny, the nature of reality, what it means to be human, ethics, heaven, hell. It's just the biggest issue there is. So we're asking, is the Bible truth? And so the question we're testing is the doctrine. Doctrine is just like a true statement of inerrancy. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Inerrancy. And you can guess what inerrancy means. What does it mean? No errors. Okay. But let me give you a little more of distinction in this definition. Okay, this is, a, this is from a, a New Testament scholar, Paul Feinberg, from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. This was his definition of inerrancy I want to... I want to use this morning. So listen in, read a couple times. This is what he says. Inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether it has to do with doctrine or morality or the social, physical, and life sciences. Did you catch that? Now, you need to know this because this is what you're supposed to defend. This is what you're supposed to believe from God's Word. Are you ready? We're going to do it again. Inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm. So there's a few uh, disclaimers, right? Number one, when all the facts are known. We don't know everything about everything. So say you're reading in your ESV and you get to a line uh, in the Old Testament prophets and there's a little number at the end of that line and you're like, I wonder what that is. And you look down at the notes and there might be a line like, the meaning of the Hebrew in this phrase has been lost. It's some sort of ancient Hebrew idiom that they use and because it was written 1,600 years ago or something, whatever. Um, No, no, that's not right. Help me. I'm tired. I'm tired. 30, 2,600 years ago. Thank you. Because it's written 2,600 years ago, we've lost the meaning of a certain phrase or idiom. Possible? True? We don't know everything about everything. But I guarantee you, if you look at how that fits in context, it won't change the meaning of the passage. You still know what the passage is talking about. So remember, we don't know everything about everything. There's still discoveries being made in archaeology, linguistics, that give a fuller sense on some details. Okay. So, once all the facts are known, the Bible's inerrant. Number two, in the original autographs. So we're not saying every scribe in history that copied the Bible was inspired by God and perfect. I'm not saying that at all. They were incredibly shockingly careful. They were amazing at what they did. But they're not inerrant. We're not saying all the copies are inerrant. We're saying the original autographs are inerrant. The first, that letter Paul wrote, that was inerrant. Original. They're, the autographs are the... That's, that's what's inerrant. So textual variants don't need to bother you. When you say, oh, one, one copy says this and one copy says that. Error! You're like, never claimed all the copies were perfect. Why would I claim that? Why would I want to claim that? The originals are perfect. The key is, can we find those? Or what they said. 
So we don't know everything about everything. Two, we're talking about the original autographs. Three, properly interpreted. Properly interpreted. I uh, had the joy of visiting some atheist and agnostic websites this week talking about all the contradictions in the Bible. And some of them were actually interesting and had me looking them up. Others of them I was just like, oh, please. Oh, please. Here's one. The, uh, it's a flashy-looking website. It had like 300 different things. And one of the big ones up at the top was he listed off references of how the Bible said Noah was righteous. The Psalms say the righteous man does this or that. So we're talking about righteous people. And then he quotes, so that's one side he's saying. Then he quotes Paul from Romans 3 where he says, no one is righteous, not even one. Contradiction! And anyone who's read the Bible or the book of Romans like twice, you're going, that's not what Paul was talking about. That's not what he meant. Paul is saying no one is righteous on their own merit. They have to be acted upon and saved by God to be righteous. And, the, and all those other passages are assuming that. That's not a contradiction. So we have to be so careful. We're talking about properly interpreted, properly interpreted. Or people will say, look at the Bible. It has things like polygamy in it. So it's this ugly patriarchy, dominating women, hurting children. That's, look at your heroes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Those are your biblical heroes, and they are doing this polygamy thing. How could we trust the Bible? Okay, folks, this is like hermeneutics 101. Hermeneutics is interpreting the Bible. Just because it's in the story, descriptive, doesn't mean you should do it. <laughs> descriptive. Now, for most of us, we take this, uh, this comes naturally, right? You read about Judas killing himself. Anybody been like, oh, I betrayed Jesus once. I better go hang myself. Please don't do that. That's not what the text is telling you to do. That's descriptive about what Judas did. You tell me, when you read the book of Genesis about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is polygamy a positive thing or a negative thing in their lives? Super duper negative. Moreover, if you bother to read like the first two chapters of Genesis, what does God say about marriage? One man, one woman. So Genesis has said what marriage is and is showing us this tidal wave of sin in people's lives and how it's ruining everything. So again, properly interpreted is really important here. So we're talking about we don't know everything about everything. We're talking about the original autographs. We're talking about the original documents, autographs, properly interpreted. And then number four, then once we know what they actually say, they're wholly true in everything that they affirm. Holy, true, and everything that they affirm, inerrant. That's our claim. So today I'm tackling, this is one sermon, these two common objections. They're everywhere from the gym to the university. You go to the gym, you talk about the Bible, the Bible will say, what about all the copies and, and interpretations? I had that one next to the back machine. If you go to the university, uh, your professor will be like, oh, you can't trust the New Testament. There's all these textual variants. You get it in both places, Okay. So we have to deal with, when we read the Bible, are we actually reading the Bible? That's one thing I want to take a shot at this morning. Number two, assuming we are actually reading the Bible, what about all the contradictions? That's the second thing I'm going to take a shot at. So I'm going to tell you right now, when you read the Bible, any common English translation, NIV, NAS, ESV, 
When you're reading the Bible, you are reading the Bible. I'm going to show you why. Number two, there's not a contradiction. There's not a contradiction, but we'll get into that. Are you ready? Okay. When we read the Bible, are we reading the Bible? Now, first, let's remember what the Bible is. It's not a science textbook. It's at least some sort of a historical record, right? You're reading a record of history. Now, history in itself is a certain kind of knowledge, isn't it? If you want to know what temperature water boils, how do you find that out? Take a temperature of the water, heat it up, and you watch when it boils, and you're going to know. And then you can test it over and over and over again. Every single time it's going to boil at, I think, right? At the same temperature, unless you're at a different altitude or... Okay, thanks, guys. You can measure that too, right? There's a certain kind of knowledge you can measure repeatedly. Is historical knowledge like that? What did the Apostle Peter do? Well, you can't repeat that. You can't put that in a test tube. Can you do it with any kind of knowledge? What did George Washington do? Can you repeat it? No. How are you going to know what he did? What's the only way to know? To read the record of the witnesses. That is the only way to have historical knowledge. You have to read the record of the witnesses. So first of all, right away, we need to ask how cynical we're going to be. Because I want to tell you that if you, if you really think you can't trust the New Testament Gospels, I think to be consistent, you have to say that you can't trust any ancient history. You have to be such a cynic that you can't trust anything at all. In fact, if you can't trust the New Testament, I don't see any reason for why you should ever trust yourself, your perceptions, because all the evidence is just right there. But we're starting with, this is a historical record. It's more than that, but it's, it's not less, and so we need the witnesses. So how does the Bible compare with other documents of ancient history that we trust? Anybody ever had to study Plato before? You heard of him? Not Play-Doh, Plato, okay, philosopher. He wrote originally 400 B.C. You've heard of Plato, right? How many copies do you think we have of Plato's writings? We have seven copies. Seven copies. And what do you think the time is between the earliest copy we have and that original autograph? So what I'm saying, the earliest copy we have in our hands, what's the difference between the date of that copy and when we know the original was written? Are you ready for this? The difference, the, it's 1,200 years. Just put that in your brains. I mean, our country feels old to me, and that's... Nothing compared to 1,200 years, and yet we read Plato and we're like, yeah, Plato said this. How about the Roman historian Tacitus? Okay, widely accepted as uh, giving us a history of Rome. It was written in the first century. How many manuscripts do we have? Three. How much time between the earliest manuscript that we have and the original writing? 800 years. And we accept Tacitus. 
How many of you in high school, you had to read Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad, and you're like, why are you punishing me? Everybody had to read that. I did, right? Did you have to read that? I did. Okay. When was that written? 900 B.C. How many copies do we have of that? It's pretty good. 643 copies. So it blows the rest of them away. What's the earliest copy that we have compared to when it was originally written? It's about 500 years later. So pretty young as far as copies go. And yet we all have to read it. Do you guys want to hear the New Testament now? So I'm telling you, if you, if you can believe those things and trust those things, are you ready to hear what we have for the New Testament? New Testament written in the first century. In Greek, we have 5,800 copies. 5,800 copies. If you add the Latin Vulgate, 8,000 more. If you add the writings of the early church fathers, you can put the entire New Testament together just with what they wrote. So you have scads and scads and scads and thousands of documents of the New Testament. That is awesome. That's, that's like miraculous in comparison to any other knowledge of ancient history. It's just fabulous. If you're going to believe history at all, you would believe this history. How old is our earliest copy that we have? Remember for these others, it's 100 years between the earliest copy and the original writing. Gospel of John, earliest copy we have is from the year 125. So depending on when you think John wrote it, his letter, something right before 70 AD, some even into 90 AD, okay, so 20 years. That's what, 40 years between the original and the earliest copy we have? Do you see now how that obliterates any other ancient history knowledge? It is so fresh. It, by definition, cannot be myth. It cannot be myth and legend. And then we have hordes of copies from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. Unreal. So we have these copies. And do you know what that means? That means we can find out what the originals meant. Okay? So this could scare you. Uh, you know, some, Bart Ehrman will tell you there's somewhere between 204,000, no, excuse me, 200 and 400,000 textual variants. Now, do you know what a textual variant is? If you read one copy and it said the dog ran, and if you read another copy and it didn't say that, it said something else. The dog was sitting or there wasn't a dog or it just said dog ran. Okay, the words are different. That's a variant. Okay? So you have a copy of the same document, but there's, there's a, a difference in the copies. And so you're like, oh, which one of these is wrong, obviously. Which one is right? Well... They'll tell you there's 200,000 to 400,000 of those textual variants. How many of you that scares you a little bit? If you went to college, you heard that. If you said to you, the New Testament has somewhere between 200 and 400,000 textual variants. Ah! How can I trust the Bible? By the way, that's true. Did you hear how many documents I told you we have? How many copies? A lot. Okay. You're looking at what, 12 textual variants of manuscript? Is that a big deal? Twelve textual variants of manuscript? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Twelve, twelve little differences, a copy. Most of them, folks, are so vanilla they deserve no attention. Craig Blomberg, New Testament scholar, says less than 3% of these variants are interesting enough to even make it into your ESB footnotes. It's something like a conjunction was forgotten, the word and, they skipped it. 
or a word was misspelled doesn't even count. So you could say, all right, but I wish we had the originals. But listen, paper doesn't last that long. And just because it's copied doesn't mean it's corrupted. This is what we need to have in our brains. Just because it's copied doesn't mean it's corrupted. Then people will bring up the thing of, you know, the game. What's that game called where you tell the secret to your friend and he tells the secret? Telephone, right? It never works. Okay. And you know what? Telephone was just like the New Testament scribes copying the Bible. They whispered it to each other. It's just insane. It was so technical what they were doing as scribes. And so held an accountability in community. And they knew what they were doing. They were trying to preserve the word of God. So say I printed out my, ser- my sermon notes to each one of you, and I gave them to each one of you, and I said, okay, mark out any one of you. Mark out a word or phrase. Just mark one out. And then you came together as a group, and you took all the copies that you had, and you brought them together. Could you find the originals based on comparing the documents? Are you all going to mark out the same word? No. Are you all going to mark out the same phrase? No, and, you, and you'd, have this, you'd, you'd have plenty to work with. You would come to, you, you'd get it exactly. And now imagine you have 20,000. You can find the originals. You see, the greatest strength for historical knowledge is a wide variety and a big group of copies. It's the greatest strength. And like we said, we have thousands. New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace says, While there are places where we are uncertain of what the original text read, the original reading is almost certainly one of the options recorded in the existing manuscripts. Did you hear that? So say you've got four differences on a verse. You know, because of the number of copies we have, the original is one of those four options. And so now you have to do the work of trying to understand, well, which one was probably the true one? Do you see? It's not that hard. So Daniel Wallace is saying, we have the originals plus a little scribal stuff. But it's there. We know we have it. And we know the options. Then somebody might say, okay, but couldn't have the new... You said there was a difference, a distance between the originals and the copies, even even 50 years. Couldn't, Couldn't they have been corrupted in that window. Ever, anyone ever wondered that before? Okay, number one. Here's my answer to that. With all the copies we have, there's no evidence of massive corruption. No evidence. Do you know how hard it would be to walk through the ancient world, find every copy of a gospel or a New Testament epistle, and corrupt it the way you wanted it? You can't do it. It's not going to happen. And if there was a movement like that doing it, we would know. Because it would have been preserved somehow. There isn't. There isn't. So if you want to believe that, you can. You can also believe the moon is made of cheese. Um, It didn't happen. It's not possible. You're reading the originals. Then you might say, all right, so you're admitting, even though most of the textual variants don't mean anything at all, they're vanilla, it's not a big deal. Wouldn't just a couple bad ones be enough to ruin us? Like, for instance, what if you had a variant that said, and therefore we worship Jesus as God, and the other variant was like, ain't no way Jesus is God. <laughs> right? That, 
Which one's the, that would be a problem. There's not one like that. There is not one like that. Have you heard of Bart Ehrman? Anybody? He's the rock star for You Can't Trust the Bible. He's written a whole scads and he gets on the, he uses provocative titles. You can't know who Jesus is at all, okay? He's the rock star for her. This thing is full of mistakes. He'll tell you his story. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in the church. And then I, then I looked at the truth of how the Bible is preserved and I just realized, you can't believe this anymore. And that's what he does and he ruins the faith of so many people. Listen to what he himself said in one of the appendixes of his own book. Bart Ehrman. The essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. That's our biggest, he's our biggest challenge guy right now. And he says, the essential Christian's beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. They're not affected. There is no textual variant. If I conceded every single one and said, all right, we won't count it or we won't listen to it or we'll take the worst argument, it wouldn't change Christianity. It wouldn't touch it. That's how amazing what we have actually is. So would you like to see, I mean, I I can't make this, this is not a seminary class, but would you like to see a variant or two? Why not? You want to? Let's do it. Okay, turn to Mark 16. Some people are bothered by Mark 16. That's going to be on page 853 in your Bibles. Page, uh, page 853, we're in Mark, 63, Mark 16, verse 8. And you read in Mark 16, verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, And then you're going to have verses 9 to 20. Now, if you're looking in the chair Bible, there's something big right after verse 8. What does it say? Some of the early manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. Does your Bible tell you which parts aren't in the Bible? Yeah, it's telling you right here. This is a variant. This was most likely a scribe. And see, we had these scribes, and they were, they were well-meaning, well-meaning people. And a lot of times they'll take something that is uncomfortable in the Bible, because the Bible has that, or there's something that's vague in the Bible, and they'll try to clear it up for us. They'll try to assume what it means, or they'll add a little bit to us just so we get the point. They're not trying to change it. They're trying to help us out. The problem is we don't want their help in this way. <laughs> and so some scribes said, oh, we need to, we need to, that's too abrupt for this to end. We need to add the, the story. And, so, and it's like you can even hold snakes. And folks, guess what? You, you ever wanted to go to a snake dance in church? Not even just once? Okay. What, what verse do you think snake dancing churches like to use? Yeah, it's in here. Where is it? Do you see it? You can handle it. Verse 18. Do you see verse 18 on page 854? They'll pick up serpents with their hands. Do you see that? And would it be nice to tell the snake dancing churches, that's not in the Bible. (laughs) It's a textual variant. It's not in the original. But are you going to read your Bible and be like, how do I know if I'm reading is really in the Bible or not? Or is your Bible going to tell you this isn't original? You got told, didn't you? 
Here's one that's a little more subtle. Move over to Mark chapter 1, verse 41, page 837. Now, this won't be in the ESV because it's really not a strong enough of a variant to get in the text. But if you wanted to be picky, here's the reality. So if you're on page 837, Mark chapter 1, look at verse 41. Uh, context is a leper comes to Jesus. Verse 41, our text says, Move with pity. He stretched out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. So he's moved with pity or compassion. Okay? There, there is a textual variant that says, Moved with anger. He said to him, I will be clean. Now your first is, well, what, what do you think fits the context better? Some variants say pity, some say anger. Pity seems to fit better. That's what most scholars would think. But let's say we conceded and said, all right, he's moved by anger. Does that mess anything up for you? Let me just tell you how this doesn't bother me. One iota. If you feel compassion for someone, how do you feel about the thing that's hurting them? Angry. Are there other occasions where Jesus faces human suffering and it makes him angry? Yeah. Is it a doctrinal problem for Jesus to be angry at human suffering? No, I love that about Jesus. If the text says the leprosy made Jesus angry, it doesn't bother me at all. Or if, are there other texts that say he's compassionate? Do we lose out on Jesus' compassion if this says angry? No. What does this change for you? Nothing. That is one of the major textual variants. Let's do one more. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. It's on page 1002 in your chair Bibles. So we're going to be looking at verse 9. The text we're reading here on this page says, We see him for a little who was for a little while, this is Hebrews two nine, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's what you read. The variant there is instead of so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, it says apart from God he might taste death for everyone. That's the variant. So, one option is, it's by the grace of God, Jesus is tasting death for us. Amen? Amen. It's God's love, Jesus is our substitute. The other option is, um, it was apart from God, he, took, he, t- he tasted death for everyone. Does that, does that bother you? What if it says apart from God? What if we concede it? Now again, the strongest conclusion, textually, is it's by the grace of God. That's the strongest reading. But it might mean apart from God. I know where some of your minds are going. What does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is it already biblical doctrine that Jesus was separated from God on the cross? Was he apart from his Father? Yeah. So if he died for us apart from God, I already believed that. If he died for us by the grace of God, I already believed that too. These are major textual variants and does it make a difference to what we believe at all? It makes no difference. Sir Frederick G. Kenyon was the director and principal librarian of the British Museum. 
and an authority on ancient manuscripts. If anybody knows ancient manuscripts, it's him. And he says, Both the authenticity and integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. So, with any evidence that you could possibly use for historical documents, you have it. We have so many copies of copies of copies and early ones and a variety of them that when you read the Bible, guess what you're reading? You're reading the Bible. You're reading a real, accurate copy of the originals with some interesting details on the periphery that make no difference to the core content of what we actually believe. In fact, the evidence is so good that if you can't believe this kind of historical attestation, you really don't have any consistency to believe any other historical attestation. It's just that strong. Now, some of you might say, what about the Old Testament? And I'm going to try to keep this a sermon and not a three-hour class, okay? All in favor, say aye. Um, I'll give you one example from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of these before? Discovered by the Dead Sea. 200 biblical manuscripts. This is a quote from Craig Blomberg, New Testament scholar. 200 biblical manuscripts ranging from roughly 250 B.C. to A.D. 50. Did you hear that? They were compared to Masoretic texts of the same scripture that we have from a thousand years or more later. That's amazing. A thousand year timing difference from these two manuscripts. So the question is, can these scribes copy or can they not? The most stunning example, he says, was the discovery of an entire scroll of Isaiah with only a handful of extremely minor differences in content from the Masoretic copies to the Dead Sea copies. It's nearly identical and on everything important it is. And that's a thousand year spread. Unreal. When you read the Bible, you're reading the Bible. So when people say to you, how can you trust the Bible? It's just copies of copies. Do you have an answer? Do you have an answer? I got more copies than you got. I got lots of copies. I know the original. All the variants are, they're generally meaningless. When we read the Bible, we read the Bible. Okay, what about all the contradictions? What about all the contradictions? Well, we should start by remembering what a contradiction actually is. What is a contradiction? The law of non-contradiction says something like, something cannot be both true and not true at the same time when dealing with the same context. So think about a silly child's game. My, my kids like to play this. Okay, You ever heard this before? If you say, I love chocolate, and the nine-year-old says, ha, do you want to marry chocolate? That's not what I meant. And context should allow you to understand what I meant. Context is really important. So is there a contradiction where the Bible says this is true, and in the same way it says this is not true? A contradiction. And I propose to you, if you find one, let me know. I know of none. I know of none. Now, there are some... There are some questions it takes of thinking, for sure, but as Craig Blomberg says, there's no problems in Scripture anywhere that haven't yielded at least plausible solutions. So here's, I'm making you think today, I realize this. Have you heard of the idea of historical diversity? Okay, diversity. 
Now, by definition, if you're reporting history, you have to be selective, right? Can you include every detail of every single thing? Is that even possible? So say somebody, um, say two of you were reporting about church service today, and one of you said, yeah, we were all there, and we sang a couple songs. And somebody else could say, well, this family was missing, their kids were sick, and we actually started with three songs, not a couple. Is that a contradiction? No, that's a diversity of reporting. Yeah, we were all there. There was a group of people there, and we sang some songs. That's all I meant to say. I was summarizing. Lay off, right? Normal use of language. Somebody else, they have a more detailed perspective because they're caring about certain things. That's not a contradiction. That's diversity. Does diversity help us when unpacking history or hurt us? It helps us. If you're a lawyer and you're putting a case together, do you want to hear one testimony or 12? The more testimonies you have, the more you can take the deals and put them together. It's called a harmonization. You're trying to put the story together. So that's what we do with the Bible as well. We have selective historical accounts. We have diversity in those accounts, and we harmonize them. It's not cheating. It's normal. That's what you do with historical accounts. So we realize that normal uses of language are not contradiction. Again, another atheist website, he brought up, Judges 4 and 5 is a contradiction. In Judges 4, the historical account says, you remember our, our favorite story, J.L. takes Sisera and nails the tent peg through his brains because he was lying there asleep. Yay, J.L. In the next chapter, Deborah says, she struck Sisera and he, at her feet he sank, he fell. Contradiction! First chapter, he's already asleep, and they nailed, the, nailed his head. Second chapter, it sounds like he's standing up, and he fell over. Contradiction. Bible's not true. How would you answer that? Chapter 4 is a more status quo narrative. What's chapter 5? It's poetry. It is so obviously poetry. Stars are fighting in chapter 5. Is there a little more license to language when you're doing poetry? The psalmist says, God, your arrows have sunk into my liver or something. Oh, these silly Christians, they believe God shoots at people. <laughs> it's poetry. Normal use of language is not contradiction. Or even different usage of the same word. You ever use the same word for different meanings? The Bible does it all the time. You, try to get, you want to confuse yourself? Do a study on Paul's use of the word all. It doesn't always mean All. But don't we do that with language? Everyone was there? Everyone? No, not everyone. <laughs> Stop. Different uses of the same words, not a contradiction. And now we need to remember this. Not including every detail is not a contradiction. So here's a big one. It's from Matthew chapter 20. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want. Matthew 20, 29, it reads like this. Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho. A large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. How many blind men? Two. And they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Real quick. Now, if you went to Mark 10, verses 46 to 47, it would read like this. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Is that a contradiction? 
Is it one blind man or two? If Mark had said there was only one blind man, there were not two blind men, one blind man, and Matthew said there were two blind men, then we might have a problem. Matthew said there were two blind men. Mark knows this guy, right? His name's Bartimaeus. And he knows his daddy's the son of Timaeus. And I guess he thought his audience might know them. So it's relevant. So he has a different view of the scene. He wants to point out this guy that they all, somebody knew. I knew the guy who got healed by Jesus. Matthew's got different things going on. He's flying higher. He's being more theological. He doesn't want to spend a lot of time here. It's a transition. Two guys, he healed him. He's the Messiah. Let's keep trucking. That's what Matthew's doing. Mark says, wait, but you, you don't realize it's Bartimaeus. That's really cool to see. Is it a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. All right? Pretty much what I'm saying is all the apparent contradictions have rational answers. So you want to see one more just for fun? Sure, why not? Turn to 2 Samuel 24, 24, page 278. This one hits the agnostic websites right here. How can you trust this Bible? 2 Samuel 24, 24. Uh, David's bringing the, uh, the ark, right? He's building an altar at a, at a certain spot, okay? And so, look at verse 24 for our purposes. In verse 23, um, Aruna says, O king, I'm giving this stuff to you. Aruna says to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24, let's read it. But the king said to Aruna, No, I'll buy it from you for a price. I'll not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. All right? What did he buy? Threshing floor, oxen, for what? 50 shekels. Cool. Turn to 1 Chronicles 21. Probably written a long time later, definitely, it seems, by a different author. Recounting the same story, chapter 21 to 22. Or excuse me, yeah, chapter 21, verse 22. So look at what David says. Verse 22. Give me the side of the threshing floor. Then I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price. The plague may be averted from the people. Verse 23. Then Ornan said to David, Take it. Let my Lord the king do it. Seems good to him. See, I've given the oxen for the burnt offerings. And you see more things are mentioned. The threshing sledges for the wood. And the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I'll buy him for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid, how much did he pay? 600 gold. Do you see the apparent contradiction? What did he pay in 1 Samuel? 50. What's he pay in 1 Chronicles? 600. What's a plausible and there's, there's lots of plausible things if we went into super detail. Is there a copyist error? Are the numbers wrong? Do we understand how they use numbers? There's arguments about whether something means a hundred or if it means a group, a troop. Okay, That's probably not what's going on here. What did David buy in 1 Samuel 24? Threshing floor, oxen. 
What did David buy in 1 Chronicles 21-25? The sight, the wheat, everything. Is it a contradiction if he paid a little for some things and a lot more for more stuff? Why is that a contradiction? It's not. That's one of the trickier ones right there. Our biggest problems for New Testament contradictions are numbers. And the Word of God is true on the numbers. There's copious errors with numbers. There's some, some, some vague things with numbers. Does the numbers change the theology or the story of the truth in any way, shape, or form? It doesn't change it. Do people tend to, um, what's the word, group numbers? Are you going to say 98 or you say, oh, there's about 100? Contradiction! Come on. Stop. Then the biggest one, I'm not going to go into this at all, is they say, oh, the Old Testament says no tattoos, no shrimp cocktails. Why do you guys not, why do you guys not believe that? I don't live by the Old Testament, do you? I don't want to live by the Old Testament. I appreciate the Old Testament. It teaches me about where I live now. I live in the New Testament. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I filled it up. I fulfilled it. Jesus is the reason I can eat shrimp. Amen? The gospel is going to all people. How many of you love Jesus for many things, including the fact that in Christ you can eat bacon? Preach, pastor. Preach. Okay, we're free in Christ. He fulfills all the law. That takes us to our text here in John. As we get there, John 17, do you realize, I mean, we've, we've handled just in a little bit of a way some of the, some of the attacks or, or questions about Scripture. But let's remember what Scripture is. 66 books written over 1,500 years. Is that amazing to you? 66 books over 1,500 years with a variety of genres, narrative, law, poetry, wisdom, on and on and on. 40 different authors, fishermen, doctors, kings, prophets, tax collectors. Three different languages, different contexts, every place from palaces to prisons. And yet, archaeology is the Bible's best friend. It's archaeological true. Amazing prophecies. I'm not even going to go into it, but there's scads of prophecies that come true in the Bible. And not only that, it's one story. Do you know how hard it is to get 40 authors over 1,500 years to write one coherent story of the entire world without contradiction? That's unreal. This is a supernatural book. You know, one reason I'm not a, I am a Christian is that I'm so deeply unimpressed with all the other options. Read any other spiritual book from any other religion and you'll be like, Bible, please. It's just awesome. All right, skip, skip, skip. John 17. What did Jesus say about the Word? Your Word is truth. In John 17, 14, Jesus said, I've given them your word. That's interesting because they already had, what, the Old Testament. And then Jesus says, I've given them your word. And really we take that as he's fulfilled the word. In fact, in John chapter 1, who is the word? Jesus. So the word of God, the Bible, amen? Yes. And what's the tip of the spear, the word of God, the point? Jesus. So which is the word, the Bible or Jesus? Yes. 
The Bible takes us to the person of Jesus. He is the word. I've given them your word. And you think of the Bible and all the history of Israel. Who's the, there's Adam. Who's the new Adam, ultimate Adam? Jesus. There's the promise to Abraham. Who's the, who's the seed of Abraham? Jesus. There's Moses who says, there's going to be a better prophet than me. Who's the better prophet? Jesus. There's the Passover lamb that saves the people. Who's the ultimate Passover? Jesus. There's the exodus that saves the people from Egypt. What's the ultimate exodus? The cross. There's all the sacrifice. Who's our atonement? Jesus. There's the temple and its great story. Who's the temple? Jesus. There's the priest who mediate for the people. Who's the priest? Jesus. There's the king who's going to come, the son of David. Who's the promised king? Jesus. Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus perfectly. I love this. And what does the word do for us in John 17? Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus believes God's word is truth, and he said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sanctify them in the truth. The word of God, the Bible, is the word. It is truth, and it transforms. It sanctifies. To sanctify is to be set apart. It's to be pulled out. So this is what God has done for us with his truth. He's pulled you out of a dying world to himself. He's made you holy and he's set you apart. It's the word of God that does that. It sets us apart. We're not of this world, Jesus said. We're going to be hated by this world. We're going to be seen as different by the world. He set us apart. Not only that, the word sanctifies us. Look at verse 19. For their sake, Jesus says, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. What does it mean that Jesus set himself apart, set himself aside? He did that on the cross. The word of God shows you your need for the cross, where Jesus put his life for yours, where Jesus gave his life for yours, where Jesus took hell so you would never have to, where Jesus rose from the dead for you, where Jesus shows you grace. The most precious thing in the world for you and for me is grace, and you're not going to get it anywhere else. But Jesus, nowhere else but Jesus will you get grace. Every other religion, you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to earn it. And we can't. And Jesus says, rest from that. I did it for you. Only Jesus does that. Totally unique. Somebody at a wedding said to me, all the religions are the same. It makes me want to... Which ones have you read? None. How do you get right with God and all those other religions? I've been to the monkey temple in Nepal. Seen the oppression of works, even killing Christianity, haven't you? You got to do it. No. Jesus says, I did it. I set myself apart to sanctify you, to make you right with God. The, supernat- the Bible is supernatural truth, and it points us to the supernatural reality of Jesus Christ, and it transforms us. No book has changed the world like the Bible. I can't prove it right now. I could easily prove it if you want. No book has changed the world like the Bible. No person has changed the world by, like Jesus Christ. He never wrote a book himself. We date history by his life. And you know what? He's changed me. I had a decision to make the last two weeks. There's someone in my life who bothers me greatly not in here, don't worry. 
They bother me greatly. I was asked to do something with them that I do not want to do. And my first response was something like, (laughs) no. (laughs) No. But then I prayed, don't do that. I prayed. And God reminded me of things like, love your enemy, be gentle with others, be gracious, welcome others, and you're here to serve, even your enemy. If it doesn't hurt your conscience, if you don't think it's wrong, but somebody else appreciates it, why can't you do it? Is it your pride? So I agreed to do it. I still don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. The only reason I'm telling you that is not because I'm a Christian superhero. I'm not. I'm just telling you I would never do that on my own. I, would ne- I, I know myself. I know my past. I would never do that on my own. And so I take a little joy in the knowledge that Jesus is changing me. He's working in me. And this leads us really to kind of the biggest issue for how you know the Bible is true. You can make intellectual arguments, right? And we need to have an answer. But how do you know the Bible is true? Because I know it's true. It's self-evident. It's powerful. It feeds me. It changes me. It delights me. It challenges me. It confronts me. It's alive to me. It sanctifies me. One last thing here with John 17. He said, sanctify them in the truth. And then he said, pull them out of the world so they won't suffer. Did you see that line? No. Yeah, contradiction. Thank you. Verse 18. Verse 18. Look what Jesus says. He's praying, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Bible is the truth of God that changes us, pulls us out of the world, and then shoots us where? Right back in. And the only way, Jesus says, you're going to make it in this world is if you're sanctified in his word. Come on, we've met together before. Say, how's your faith? It's not good. I'm wondering if it's even true. I'm having a hard time. You been in your Bible much? No. Jesus said it would be like that. You can't make it in this world unless you're in the word. You know what the biggest corruption is for the world it's not the it's not the texts and their copies you know what the worst translation is of the word in this world it's when i don't give a rip about the bible it's when you don't care and you don't read it as a christian that's the document that makes no sense that's the book that's really hard to read Can the people in your life read your life and see Bible? Or do they say, this is a copy of a copy of a copy. It doesn't make any sense. Or when people look at your life, do they say, I don't know if the Bible's full of contradictions, but that person is. You know, we we live in a time where we know the Bible scientifically, textually, critically, better than any other generation that's ever walked the earth. And we have easier access to it at any time than any other generation that's ever walked the earth. And we care the least, maybe, 
of any Christian generation that's walked the earth. You can read about Bible translators in the Middle Ages getting their brains squeezed out next to a tree because they translated the Lord's Supper into English so people could read it. And they were willing to die so that people had the Bible. Or you think of those scribes, these unnamed scribes who sat in these dark places and copied so hard and so hard and so hard for hours so that we'd have a Bible to read. And we have Bible Gateway and ESV.com and Logos Bible Software and, 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 it, and I have it on my phone and my iPad in nine different versions and I have, gosh, do you have a Bible? If you don't have one, take one from us. And most of you are like, I have 12. I have three study Bibles. If the Bible is truly God's word that shows us salvation and grace in Jesus, what should we do? Treasure it. Psalm 19. Your word is like honey. It's better than gold. Treasure the word. Know it. Study it. Trust it. Do it. Proclaim it. Because Jesus hasn't taken us out of the world for vacation. He sanctified us and thrown us into the world. And the way we glorify him in the world is to be sanctified in his word. We can't do it without his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the word of God, the ultimate revelation, and you're the beautiful son of God and the Christ, and we worship you. We thank you, God, that you have preserved for us such a trustworthy book, that we have every reason, every intellectual reason to believe this book. You've spoken, you've preserved it. So God, as Christians here, mostly at least, Lord, we pray that you would give us the hunger we should have for your word, a confidence we can have in your word, that we would be daily treasuring Jesus Christ, growing in him, and that we would be regularly uh, just feasting on your word, confident in your word, proclaiming your word, so that, like your word says, we would have an answer. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.